Man, you guys were like a bunch of racehorses waiting for the gate to open during worship tonight. You must think Jesus is coming again or something. Amen. A couple of things before we jump in. Just wanted to give you, because so many ask at the door, a little medical update. I had an ultrasound on Wednesday, or Monday rather, and uh, my friend is still with me. However, the vascular surgeon said there's a tiny stream of blood starting to make its way through the clot. So that's good. So we'll take what we can get. Amen. So please continue to pray. I just assumed that I didn't have any uh, stowaway travelers in my body uh, at this point in time or any point in time for that matter. But I covet and appreciate your prayers. And also, if you're going to read ahead for this Sunday, we're going to finish off Acts chapter 15. We'll look at verses 30 through 41 if you'd like to read ahead. Acts 15, 30 through 41. Well, here we go. Are you ready? Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12, we'll look at the whole of the chapter this evening. And I will say this by way of introduction, that by and large our text is self-explanatory. There's a few things that we need to dig for a bit in order to gain some clarity on them. But there, as is always true, personal application for us in this chapter. And we'll uncover some of those things tonight. I mentioned this many times in the past, how it is always amazing how God in his providence and sovereignty orchestrates things here at CCT and elsewhere around the world and in other churches, obviously, in that he directs the books and passages that we are studying. And often Sunday and Wednesday will coincide with one another, even with all the twists and turns, the praise nights, the pauses for looking at our PowerPoint verses on Sunday. And we often wind up looking at like topics from different books, and in our case, even different Testaments of the scripture telling us God wants to make sure we get the message. Amen. Now, not only do our texts frequently coincide with each other, but they also correlate frequently with the times in which we live in very specific ways. Now, our last two messages in the book of Acts were titled Rightly Dividing and It's Time to Take a Stand. And our study in 1 Samuel 11 was titled, The Resistance. And we are to take a stand as a resisting force against evil advancing in our world. Now, after all we heard at proximity over the weekend, how our world is preparing for globalism and the Antichrist who will be its head and leader during that time, it seems as though the Lord wants to stir us up and prepare us for one last push before he comes and snatches his church off the face of the earth. And he is going to do that someday. And I believe that day is soon. Now, Romans 13, 11 and 12, Paul writes, do this, knowing the time that it is now high time to awake out of sleep. For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Now, I don't think anybody is unaware that our world has plunged into darkness and continues a downward spiral on an hourly, even moment by moment basis. And therefore, we can recognize the night or a period of darkness is far spent. It's been going on since the fall of man in the garden and it's reaching its bottom, so to speak, in the days in which we now live. 
man cannot sink much lower morally. Amen? I mean, come on, think about it. We're calling uh, killing babies in the womb a woman's reproductive right. Evil is called good today. The oldest ordinance of humankind that God instituted even before the fall of man, which is marriage, has now been redefined by man in his pride and arrogance. Man cannot get much more spiritually deceived or inept. And the only thing left to happen now within this downward spiral is for Jesus to come for his church and return to judge the world in order to stop this constant and increasing moral and spiritual decline. Now, in our last chapter, in chapter 11, we mentioned that Saul was about to encounter two things. One, he and Israel were about to be threatened, and threatened rather significantly. And secondly, he was about to be validated as the king in the eyes of the people. Now, this was all brought about by the threats of the king of the Ammonites, a man named Nahash. And if you remember, his name means serpent. So what we found in chapter 11 is God's chosen people being attacked by a serpent king. And that's a very familiar scenario, and it continues to this day. Who is the serpent? Satan, obviously. Now, 1 Peter 3, 13 and 14 reminds us, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? That's an interesting statement from a man who would be killed by Nero. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are what? Blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. That's a word for today. We need not be afraid of the threats of the government or or, uh, the UN or anybody else that's wanting to threaten the church. I had somebody give me a message on social media that said when they looked at my Facebook page, a prompt popped up and said, do you find the content of this person's page to be offensive? I'm not sure what they answered, but it's interesting that that question is being popped up in an effort to censor those who speak the truth in love from God's word. Now, we know there's a right time to divide, as we found on Sunday a few weeks ago. There's a time to take a stand as the resistance against the serpent king. And we learned last time, just by way of reminder, that nonconformity to the world is essential to our resistance to the enemy. We also learned that righteous indignation is something we should share, not something to beware. It's okay to be angry, but not sin. We should be angry with what's going on in our world today. We should be angry that our colleges are consuming our children and leading them astray. And the enemy will only flee through our resistance, not our complacence, was our last observation from some weeks ago. Now Samuel is going to remind the people again that he was against this whole king like other nations thing from the get-go. He's going to say so in his chapter, but he's also going to highlight that in the midst of the demands of an erring and idolatrous people, he lived in the middle of them in a manner that was above reproach and free from accusation. Now, our topic and title tonight is simply this, and it's kind of a fill in the blank, and we'll do that four times tonight. And you, if you're a note taker, can write this at the top of your page, and it will be the introductory phrase to all four of our observations. Our title tonight is Be Still and Know. 
Be still and know. Now, I know that our minds are going to rush immediately to Psalm 46.10, and they should, which says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Somebody say amen to that. It's going to come to pass. But where our minds are not naturally going to gravitate is to what the Hebrew word translated as still means. Now, when we think of still, we think of being quiet or not moving or refraining from movement. But the Hebrew word, now listen close. The Hebrew word still actually means to be faint, to be feeble, to slack, or to be disheartened or even to be relaxed. Now that means, listen, that means when we feel faint, feeble, slack, relaxed, or disheartened, we need to know that he's God. And when things are going in a manner that is difficult for us, we need to know that he is God. And it's interesting, we're going to see all of these attributes of being still manifested in our text, assuring us that there are things we can know because we know God, including that he will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in all the earth, and he is going to do so, I believe, very soon. So we'll find four things to know tonight when we are still, when we're feeling faint, feeling feeble, slack, relaxed, or disheartened, things that are essential to being part of the resistance, rightly dividing, and taking a stand in these ever-darkening last days. So we've got 25 verses to cover. So without delay, let's begin with verses 1 through 5. Would you stand and read with me, please? 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Verse 1. Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you said to me and have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed. And look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken or whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. Then he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. You may be seated. Now, one thing to take note of, we see the anointed mentioned here twice, and that's simply speaking of Saul as the one whom the Lord had anointed or appointed as king. Now, remember, Israel had gathered in Gilgal to officially inaugurate Saul as king after the rousing defeat of the serpent king and the battle strategy initiated and employed by Saul that led to their victory in Jabesh. This was a city that was threatened with either extermination or plucking out the right eye of all the males to humiliate the whole country of Israel. Now, as we get into it, what we're going to find is that Saul's or Samuel's rather coronation speech for Saul is anything but typical. He opens with telling the people, well, you got what you wanted. Now you have a king and there he is. He's walking right over there and you can see him. And then he says, I am old and gray-headed. 
And then he makes this comment. He says, my sons are with you. What that means is that his own sons had sided with the people. They wanted things to go in the direction that the people wanted, even though their father stood against it. And he says in paraphrase, my life has been an open book before you since I was a child. I've neither wrongfully profited from my position nor oppressed you because of my position nor taken bribes exploiting my position. And the people said to Samuel in verse 4, it's true. You've been a man of integrity the whole time you have judged Israel. And then Samuel said, the Lord is witness against you. And he was doing two things. One, as he mentioned, the anointed, again, pointing to King Saul. He was making sure the people understood the king heard what they said. But he was guarding himself against any future accusation that could arise from a a fickle and spiritually unstable people. And with the confirmation the people had made concerning Samuel's faithfulness in his judicial duties, they were also, in a sense, condemning themselves in that they had recognized that there was no reason for them to make a demand for a king. There was no reason to protest, no dissatisfaction that they had issued against Samuel's administration of duties. And consequently, their request for a king was simply to feed the desires of their flesh. Now, with what comes from Samuel in our next section, I wonder if the people would have given such a hearty reply to Samuel if they knew what he was about to say next. Now, 1 Corinthians 16, 13 to 14, we're told to watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, and let all that you do be done with what? With love. This is exactly what we see happening with Samuel in our text. This is his testimony, as we'll see more fully in a moment. Even when Samuel stood alone, even when his own household was against him, as Jesus said, they would be with us, even with the people, in a sense, rejecting and disobeying God, Samuel still stood before the Lord in integrity. Now, this leads us to the first of our four considerations tonight, in that we live in an age much like Samuel's, where many people are wanting things to go the direction of the world, even amongst God's people called the church. They're even wanting the church to be more like the world, as we talked about on Saturday, under the guise of trying to reach the world. Now, here's our takeaway tonight, and I believe some will find this to resonate with their own personal experience at this moment in time. And here's the first thing we need to know. Be still and know when you feel like you're all alone, you're not. Be still and know when you feel like you're all alone, you're not. When you feel like Samuel, or maybe when you are like Samuel, in that your family is against God, or that your family is in the world. You're not alone. The Lord is with you. Somebody say amen. Now, when you feel things have gone haywire amidst the chosen people of God, like we're seeing in the church today, you're not alone. God is with you. And Samuel could call on the Lord as a witness in the midst of all those things that could have made him feel feeble feeble and be disheartened because he knew the Lord was with him because he had walked with the Lord the whole of his life. Now, Hebrews 
tells us another promise that is consistent with what we find in 1 Samuel. In Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, we're told to let our conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have. This would be a fitting description of what Samuel said to the people. I haven't taken anything from you. I haven't taken anything uh, the way this king is going to take from you. And for he himself has said to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you believe that tonight? Man can do nothing to us. And we'll find out why that's true here in a couple of minutes. Now, the age of the judges was coming to a close and Israel was about to enter into the time period known as the time of the kings. And Samuel was the man chosen to mediate this process And the Lord was the one who did the choosing. And listen, I submit this to you tonight. We too are living in a time when things are about to change. They're about to go from bad to worse. But thankfully, I'll remind you again tonight, uh, the great escape precedes the great tribulation. Uh, We'll be out of here when all that goes down on the earth. And it's a time today where it's easy to get disheartened. But not only do we need to remember the Lord is with us, we need to remember there are others like us. Remember when the great prophet Elijah, he just seen the Lord consume the 450 prophets of Baal after they cut themselves and cried out to their God all of the morning and up to the noon hour. And then he poured water around the uh, altar. He poured water on the wood. He poured water on the sacrifice. He poured water on the altar. And he called out to his God. The fire came down from heaven. His God is our God, by the way. Fire came down from heaven, consumed the wood, consumed the water, consumed the sacrifice, consumed 450 prophets of Baal. And the next thing we read about Elijah is he's on the run because Jezebel said, I will have your head. Now, remember, this situation left him feeling feeble. And he was disheartened to the degree that he hid himself in the cave as he was fleeing from Jezebel. And an interesting exchange takes place in 1 Kings 19, 9 and 10. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord uh, came to him. And he, the Lord, said to him, he asked him this twice in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 1 Kings 19. What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they're trying to kill me. Remember what the Lord said? Verse 18, same chapter. uh, Elijah, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him, which was part of the worship process, kissing a statue. Uh, I'll say no thanks to that. I don't want to kiss a statue 500,000 people have kissed before me. Somebody say amen to that. Now, I can't tell you the times I've heard over the years and even over the weekend, people tell me they cannot find a Bible teaching church and they have retreated to the cave of their computer or their Roku to meet with the rest of the remnant so they can get fed online. But we need to remember, when we feel like we're alone, we're not. God is with us and there are others who are like us. Now, let's keep reading in 6 to 12. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron, 
and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand how? Still, that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord, and we have served the Baals and the Asterisks. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel, Bedan, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. Now, Samuel does two things here. One, he takes a a brief walk through Israel's history. He takes him back to Moses and Aaron and the enslavement during uh, the age of the pharaohs. The people cry out to God under the strain of this enslavement. And the Lord hears. The Lord sent them Moses and Aaron as deliverers. He then reminds them of how when the same people forgot the Lord who delivered them, that God was righteous when he acted in disciplining them when they were defeated by their enemies. And then Samuel says, in the days of his own predecessors, they had been oppressed first by Sisera, then by the Philippines, then by the people of Moab. And then he says, you cried to God for deliverance, and he delivered you. Aren't you glad God doesn't abandon us when we mess up? Now, he goes on to say, but now, with all of this history, knowing all of these things, all the way back to Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh and Egypt, when Nahash threatens you, you don't call on the Lord. You say, we want a king like other nations. Now, I think probably most people at some point have become disheartened to the degree in the face of difficulty, in spite of God's past record of faithfulness, that they were looking around instead of looking up. It is our natural tendency. We start looking for a way out. Amen. It's just who we are. It's what we do. Now, the beauty of our verses and what must uh, what we must be still and know comes from verses 10 and 11. Now, having experienced the righteous discipline of God, they cried out to God. They acknowledged and identified their sins. They asked the Lord for undeserved deliverance, and they promised to serve him. Now, Samuel then gives God's response to these cries. And the men during the age of the judges, and he introduces first Gideon. Now, Jerubbabel was a name given to Gideon by his father when Gideon destroyed the altar of Baal. And Jerubbabel simply means to contend with Baal. And that's exactly what Gideon did. Now, we have another name in the lineup here that's kind of interesting, Bedan. It's not a name we find in the book of Judges, but I think we get a hint as to who's really in view through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11.32 says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and who? Barak. 
and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. Now, Bedan is actually the word for judging. And Barak was a judge at the time of Sisera. So those who like to say the Bible has errors in it or names that mean nothing, it's likely that, like Jerubbabel, Bedan was a pseudonym for Barak. He was the one who was judging. Now, Jephthah is a man that I think most of us are aware of, at least a portion of his story. And after leading the people in victory over the Ammonites, he made a vow to the Lord. I will sacrifice to you whatever it is that first comes out of my house when I arrive home. When he arrived home, his only child, his daughter, came out of the house, as recorded in Judges 11. Now, Samuel, you can read the rest of the story there if you like. Samuel is listed last, whom the Lord raised up on behalf of the people to guide and deliver them through and from their oppression and oppressors. So, again, in summary, the people sinned and the Lord disciplined them. Is he still in that business today? The people sinned and the Lord disciplined them. The people own their sin and vowed to serve the Lord, and he delivered them. Now, what I wanted to highlight for you and I this evening is that the Lord delivered them knowing he was going to have to do it again. Knowing that the same process was going to be repeated over and over down through Israel's history. Now, it came to a place where Israel's discipline was severe and he scattered them among the nations of the world, but he did not forsake them. He brought them back into the land and there they are today and they will not be uprooted according to Amos chapter eight. Now, here's what you and I need to glean from this. Listen tonight. Be still and know God's faithfulness is based on his character, not ours. Be still and know God's faithfulness is based on his character, not ours. Paul told Timothy, when we're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Now, what we need to glean also from this is that God is going to be faithful to deliver and God is going to be faithful to discipline. And in both acts, he is completely righteous in doing so. Now, I'll remind you of Psalm 139, 7 through 11, where the psalmist says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be about me. If we could summarize that, God is going to be faithful to us on our good and bad days. No matter how we're doing, he's going to be faithful. He'll be faithful in disciplining us to bring us back into his will and purposes. He'll be faithful in delivering us when enemies rise up against us. In Hebrews 12, 3 to 6, we're also told to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become what? Weary and discouraged where? In your souls. You've not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. I heard, uh, most of you know who Ken Graves is, right? I heard Ken Graves teach this passage one time, and he said, you know, the father is just like a father. He says, get up, man, you ain't bleeding. You're not bleeding from your striving against sin, get up. 
And you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord, what? Loves, he chastens and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, this is what Samuel is taking the people through. When they cried out to God, he delivered them. When they followed after the Ashtaroths and Baals, he disciplined them. Now, I'm glad that God doesn't abandon us when, in spite of his track record of faithfulness, we fall into fear when we should be walking by faith. I'm glad he doesn't cast us out when we look around for help instead of looking up to where our help comes from. Now, this is one of the reasons, this passage and all we've been studying is one of the reasons it's saying things like, we as New Testament Christians or members of the church ought to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament is so dangerous. What a track record we have of God's faithfulness to Israel to encourage us when we're under fire, when we're going through our own trials and wilderness experiences. God's interaction with Israel through their failures, their victories, and now the restoration to their land as his people reminds us that God is a God of mercy and a God of grace. And those two attributes are expressed and experienced in our lives solely because they are based exclusively on God's nature and character. Somebody say, Amen. Now let's read through 13 through 15. Now therefore... Here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And then he says this interesting comment and take note. The Lord has set a king over you. In other words, you asked for it. God made it happen. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers, pointing back to his previous statements. Now, Samuel says, you asked for a king, the Lord gave you king. Now, this in my mind is Samuel saying, listen, you're the ones who asked for a king and the Lord has given you one. And don't forget that when he starts to act like I told you he would. And he then points their minds to an immutable truth that we need to remember. And then as he points out the universal law of sowing and reaping in these uh, last two uh, verses, 14 and 15. Now, this has been true since the beginning of man. In Genesis 4, 3 to 7, we know that in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. The reason he did is because that's what God had ordained for man to bring, to come with a blood sacrifice before him. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And the reason was, is Cain brought the result of his own efforts and not what God had prescribed. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? Listen to this. If you, what? Do well. Is it up there? If you do well... Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And that's exactly what it said in verses 14 and 15. 
Now, if you remember our opening point of our opening message and looking at a word for the years, that obedience is always going to lead to blessing. Do you believe that tonight? Obedience is always going to lead to blessings. Cain had a choice to do well and be accepted, and he chose not to. Samuel put a choice before the people. Submit to God and obey or rebel against God and disobey. And you'll have the corresponding outcomes to either pair of actions. If they chose the wrong path, they could trust that the Lord was not going to bless them on it. Now, the statement of Samuel here is interesting as it seems to point out that I think in our thinking, we might have the proverbial cart before the horse in our day. Now, pay attention to what Samuel says. He says, if you fear the Lord, serve and obey the Lord, and do not rebel against the Lord, the king will continue with you. In other words, what the people are doing will determine what the leadership is doing. Now, many seem to be looking to the political leaders in our day to turn the country around when the process actually works in reverse, according to Scripture and that which we have in front of us. In our election cycles here in our country, we see this played out time and time again. The heart and will of the people is manifested in those elected to office. When people reject God on an individual level, it will be reflected on the national and political level, and people will bear the brunt of their own decisions, even as verse 15 says. Now, the Proverbs remind us in 29.2, when the righteous are in authority, the people do what? Rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people do what? Groan. So we have a choice every election cycle to rejoice or groan. Boy, there's been a lot of groaning lately, hasn't there? Now, here's what we need to understand. And here's our point in such a time as this. And again, these are just applicational reminders that uh, we can glean in and from the text in front of us. Listen tonight. Here's number three. Be still and know God is in control, not the government. Be still and know God is in control, not the government. Consider that again, what we're told here. Samuel tells the people. If you're doing well, if you're serving the Lord, if you're not following after idols, if you're not rebelling against God, then that's what the leadership of this country is going to do. And listen, never has our country been so divided. You notice that? Never has our country been so divided since the Civil War, I should say. Yet we need to remember, listen, God blesses people, not political parties. God is not a Republican. God is not a Democrat. God is not an independent. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he has no political affiliation. Now, we need to submit and surrender to him as his people and watch things on the upper echelon, so to speak, begin to change. And we cannot underscore enough what Samuel says in 14 and 15. When poor choices have been made, fearing, serving, regarding fearing, serving, and obeying, and not rebelling against the Lord, there's going to be consequences. When good choices are made concerning fearing, serving, and obeying, and not rebelling against the Lord, it's going to be a benefit to the nation. Now, recognizing that there is only one nation or ethnic people group who can claim rightfully as national status of the people of God, doesn't mean that there aren't universal principles that apply to our lives and country as well. Our nation is headed for an eventual uh, calamity, without question. 
It's going to turn against Israel. Zechariah says all nations will. But while sliding down the slippery slope nationally, we need to be still and know that God is in control of our lives, not the government. Now, Isaiah says in 51, 12 to 15, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and the son of a man who will be made like grass? And you forget the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth. You feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he is prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? What good were his efforts is what the Lord is saying to and through Isaiah. The captive exile hastens that he may be loose, that he should not die in the pit. And that his bread should not fail. But I am the Lord your God, who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of armies, or host, is his name. That's our God. And he is for us and watching over us. It's a comfort to know that the God of all comfort is in control of a world spiraling out of control. Somebody say, Amen. Now, let's wrap it up with 16 through 25. Now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is not today the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Then Samuel said to the people, Do not fear, you have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord, serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, You shall be swept away, both you and who? And your king. Now, much to consider here that we could miss without some careful attention to details. The wheat harvest is mentioned to give us a time stamp, so to speak, of being somewhere between mid-May to the month of June on our calendar, a time where rain is a rarity. Now, in the dead of winter, Samuel said, I'm going to pray to the Lord that it rains and it's already raining or cloudy or sprinkling. That would hardly be something that would be bone shaking to the people. Now, the thunder and rain was not just a confirming sign of Samuel's words. It was a clear warning to the people about disobedience and rebellion. Now, Proverbs 26.1 tells us, As snow in summer and rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. In other words, it's not fitting to snow in the summer. It's not fitting to rain at harvest time, or it's unusual for that to happen, just like uh, honor 
is unusual for a fool. Now, rain at harvest time would at best make harvesting difficult as the rain-soaked sheaves of grain would be extremely heavy. And at worst, the rain would have the potential to damage or destroy the crops. And the mention of thunder also possibly implies thunderstorms. And what's common in thunderstorms? Little balls of ice falling from the sky, which destroys crops. Now, interesting, the response of the people is the fear of Samuel and the Lord, but it wasn't the right kind of fear. It wasn't the fear that drove the people to repentance and prayer. It was fear that drove them to ask Samuel to pray to his God, not to their God. Samuel tells the people not to fear, even in the midst of the evil of asking for a king for themselves. And he reiterates his previous statements and adds, don't turn aside to empty things which will neither profit or be able to deliver you. And then he says something wonderful in verse 22. The Lord will not forsake his people for his name's sake. Then Samuel says, I will not sin against the Lord by not praying for you. Let's let that one settle in for a minute. I will not sin against the Lord by not praying for you or ceasing to pray for you. Should we be a people of prayer? One of the cards that came in with a Q&A session on proximity, and there's probably a few more with questions along the same lines, and that is if God is sovereign, if God in his providence orchestrates events, if he's already foretold how everything is going to come to pass, what is the point of prayer? Well, the first point of prayer is this. God said pray without ceasing. Hello? God said pray. Do we need other reasons? God said pray, so we ought to be a people of prayer. And then Samuel takes it next level here and says, as a matter of fact, I'm sinning against the Lord if I don't pray for my own people. We need to be a people of prayer. What was a, a wonderful reminder given to God's people when Solomon asked at the dedication of the temple? What if your people turn to idolatry? What if they go after the Baals and the Ashtoreths of our day? What if they turn from you and don't remember the great things that you have done? What did the Lord say in response in Second Chronicles 7:14? If my people called by my name will humble themselves and do what? You see, pride kills a prayer life. When we find a sense of self-sufficiency or that we don't need the Lord, the first thing to go is prayer. God says in response to Solomon's prayer, his petition at the dedication of the temple, he says, if my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and what? Heal their land. Now, when the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people keep rejecting me? Back in all the wanderings and all the other experiences. And not believe in me, even in, or with all the signs that they have seen and experienced. Now, the Lord was obviously angry, and Moses said to the Lord, listen, if you wipe these people out, the Egyptians are going to hear about it. And then they're going to say this, Numbers fourteen sixteen. Because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. In other words, Moses says, Lord, if you don't let these people get into the promised land, the Egyptians are going to accuse you of being weak. 
Ezekiel 38, 18 to 21. The Lord says, therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for the idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they did what? They profaned my holy name. Listen, every day that Israel was outside the land of promise, God's name was profaned. That's why he brought them back into the land. And when they said of them, these are the people of the Lord and they've gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. The people here rejected God and wanted a king like other nations. The people had been warned in great detail of how the king would act told six times that the king would take, take, take. And Samuel gives his own testimony that he took nothing from the people. Yet the people said, we still want a king. Samuel recounts the faithfulness of God all the way back to their inception as a nation, back to the time of the pharaohs and Moses and Aaron. And the people say, we still want a king. God shows his power over the elements and sends thunder and rain in a time when it shouldn't be thundering and raining. And the people don't pray. They ask Samuel to pray to his God. Now, in light of what we're told in verse 22, I couldn't help but think of what Jesus reminded us of in Luke 6:35: To love your enemies, do good, lend hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to who? The unthankful and the evil. Were these people unthankful for all that God had done? Were they acting evil? Yes, indeed. And God says through Samuel to Israel, I chose you and I will not forsake you. For it pleased me to make you my people. And for my great name's sake, you will not be forsaken. Now here's the last thing I'd like you to consider tonight. You ready? Mike, thank you for being ready. Is anybody else ready? Any takers over here? Are you guys ready? All right, here we go. Be still and know the glory of God is our greatest defense. Be still and know the glory of God is our greatest defense. And I'll have to uh, work our way through this for a moment. But listen, first of all, the church has followed the path of Israel in almost every way. Israel was called out of Egypt and the Lord's hand was mighty on their behalf. God has called the church out of the world and the Lord's hand has been mighty on our behalf. Israel forgot their beginnings. Much of the church has forgot our beginnings today. The Jews are called God's chosen people. The church is called God's chosen people. God told Israel he would not forsake them. He said the same thing to the church. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we know that Israel will neither be destroyed or displaced from their land. And we know the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. Both groups are loved and chosen of God. And he will defend his name for his glory. So his glory is our greatest defense and our greatest assurance. Abraham understood this. Moses understood this. Ezekiel got this. That's why Abraham bargained with God. Would not the God of all the earth do right? Would you not being who you are, deliver the righteous? Would you destroy a city with 50 righteous in it? We know how the negotiations go. They get all the way down to 10 and there's not even 10 righteous in Sodom. So the Lord destroyed the city, but he first removed the righteous from it. 
And we need to remember this as the body of Christ, as a church today. God is going to defend us for his namesake and glory. So that means he's going to defend us even when we act like Israel did. Even when we mess up. Even when we make poor decisions. Even when we look around instead of looking up. God is going to be faithful to us because he loved us and set his name upon us. Now in Revelation 3, 11 to 12... Jesus said again, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a, uh, make him a pillar in the temple of my God. That simply speaks of permanence. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him what? My New name. Jesus has a new name. You know what it is? I don't either. I thought maybe somebody out there knew. I have no idea. Now, Jesus is coming quickly. So be still and know. You're never alone. Be still and know by nature, God is faithful. Be still and know that God is in control. And should we at any given point in time feel faint, feeble, slack, relaxed, or disheartened, remember, his glory is our greatest defense. He will defend his name for his own glory. And all I can add to that is even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. And Father, again, we're thankful for our opportunities to refuel midweek to have our minds and thoughts elevated above the circumstances of life and the difficulties that are often disheartening that we face. And help us, Lord, to do what Samuel called upon the people here to do, the people of Israel, to look back and remember your track record of faithfulness. You've never failed us. You've never left us. You've been faithful in your deliverance and discipline, and you'll be faithful in both of those things according to your righteousness all the days of our lives. You will not leave us orphans, and you have not, as you have given us your spirit as a guarantee of a future inheritance and glory. Thank you, Lord, that we know from your word that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we thank you, Lord, that that name is great and defended by you yourself for your glory. So as the people who bear your name, followers of Christ. Lord, we thank you that you are are our defense and no weapon formed against us will prosper. And every tongue that speaks against us in judgment, we can condemn for this is our heritage as servants of the Lord and our righteousness is from you, according to you. So we thank you for these things tonight. And thank you, Lord, that even in our struggles and trials, we can know that you are God, a defender of your great name and the people who bear it. So, Lord, we thank you for this midweek fill-up once again. Help us to go out with joy, be led by and empowered by your Spirit to preach the gospel to every creature. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people agreed by saying, Amen. Amen. It is an exciting time, an amazing time, as we talked about uh, Saturday, I just I think so many people are still just flying high off of the proximity conference and the wonderful things we heard, the powerful uh, teachings we heard that day. And uh, it's just interesting that we live in a time 
that is distinct from any other generation before us. We live in a time where we saw in this generation the rebirth of the nation of Israel. The Bible says those who see it will see the whole thing unfold before their eyes. So listen, Jesus is coming. Potentially soon, perhaps even today. So let's look up because our redemption is nigh instead of around or down because the world has gone crazy. We have much reason to be excited and anticipate and eagerly wait the return of the Lord for his church. He's going to come suddenly in a moment and twinkling of an eye. And we will instantaneously put on immortal incorruptibility and a body with no blood clots or scars. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Would you all stand?